Father, I thank you for for waking us up this morning. I thank you for giving us bread to eat. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are his love gifts. I thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit to empower us and, and to dwell within us. Lord, I pray for your people, the ones who are here. Give them ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts ready to receive your word. I pray for the, for the members of the church who aren't here. I pray, Lord, that, that you will speak to them as well through your Holy Spirit and through your word. Lord, use me for your honor and for your glory. Let your people not hear me or see me, but hear and see you, Lord. And may I do all of this for your glory. Lord, I stand under the word. I do not stand over the word because I need this just as bad as your congregation. So help us, Holy Spirit. Be with us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Uh, before I start, is anyone cold? Everyone's fine. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> one other thing. You know that it gets cold here. So women, bring a, bring a scarf, bring a sweater, bring something with you for now on, okay? Because it gets very cold sometimes, and uh, sometimes I see your guys' faces, and you guys, you guys are shivering, and, and, and that's not very cool. That's not, so um, bring a sweater. <clears throat> so as you know, we are continuing our study through the epistle of James, I pray that that's been some encouragement to you guys. Now, I want you guys to understand that when we're going through this epistle, this is something that you need to pay very close and close attention to. Uh, whether me or Pastor John speak, every message from the epistle of James is very important and it's very vital for the Christian life. So don't take this time for granted. Now, this is not just a casual Wednesday service. But it's a special time where the people of God meet together. <clears throat> as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Let me read that one more time. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. This is what was preached by John Tetzel as he traveled from town to town in Wittenberg, Germany. His charge was to go to place to place and sell letters of indulgence. According to the New Event Catholic Encyclopedia, an indulgence is an extra sacramental remission of temporal punishment due and God's justice to sin that has been forgiven which remission is granted by the church in the exercise of the power of the keys through the application of the superabundant merits of Christ and of the saints and for some just and reasonable motive. Now, if you're not Catholic, if you don't understand a word what I just said, an indulgence fundamentally is a permission to release from sin. It's a remission of the penalty of sin. Uh, and, and Tetzel was commissioned to sell such indulgences for the living and for the dead in order to fund the building of St. Peter's in Rome. And St. Peter's, as you know, is where now the Pope lives, where he resides. One theologian said regarding Tetzel, when the commissioner was welcomed to town, the papal bull was carried on velvet or gold cloth. All the priests, monks, councilmen, teachers, pupils, men, women, maids, and children went out to meet him, singing in solemn precision with flags and candles. The bells tolled, and when he entered the church, the organ played. A red cross was put in the middle of the church, to which the Pope's banner was affixed. And, and get this, in short, even God himself could have not been welcomed and received more beautifully. Now, while everyone was flocking to Tetzel, one German monk was slowly building his case to why selling indulgences was blasphemy. So on October 31st, 1517, this monk posted some statements for debate on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. A list of 95 questions and propositions for debate. The statements were angry and crisp. 
bold and unashamed. He sharply questioned a need to spend the money of people whom many were poor to rebuild St. Peter's. He questioned the Pope's power over departed souls in purgatory. And then he finally attacked the whole practice of indulgences. Peace from God, he said, doesn't come through a letter of indulgence, but in faith in Jesus Christ and following him. Now, people over the years have complained about the practices of the church, but to call something that the church was doing, namely selling indulgences, blasphemous, well, that was attack on the authority of the one true church, as Rome likes to call herself. Now, this monk wasn't trying to popularize his ideas and his, and his criticisms. He simply was just inviting debate. But others took these 95 theses and spread them all over Germany. Soon, this monk was becoming the talk of the town. And as you know, this German monk's name was Martin Luther. And he unintentionally sparked one of the greatest causes to ever take over Europe, the Reformation. He was, as one writer said, a man climbing in the darkness, the winding staircase in the steeple of an ancient cathedral. In the blackness, as he climbs, he reached out to steady himself, and his hand laid hold of a rope. Immediately, he was startled to hear a loud ringing, and he realized he had grasped hold of the bell pole. Finally, after centuries of darkness, a light had dawned. Luther went on and lived a life that seemed to be taken out of a Hollywood movie script. And during his life, Luther wasn't afraid of a debate. He battled the Roman Catholic Church. He battled Johann Eck. He battled Erasmus. And he even battled James, Jesus' half-brother James. Luther was very opposed to the epistle of James, if you don't know. He went so far to say that James should be taken out of the Bible. Luther, holding to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which we all hold to, he thought James was teaching contrary to that. He believed James was teaching that works are the basis of our justification. And at first glance of James 2, how can you blame him? It does seem like James is downplaying faith. I mean, look at verse 24 of chapter 2, if you will. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What do we do with that? You can say the heart of the Reformation was the rediscovery of the gospel. But also the heart of the Reformation was the rediscovery of sola fide, faith alone. However, Luther thought that James was teaching something different. And throughout history, church history, James has been a stumbling block for many Christians when it comes to the issue of faith and works. Roman Catholics use James to justify their own system of soteriology, of salvation. They believe that one is justified ultimately by their works. <clears throat> we believe that one is justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. But what do we do with works? And do our works play any part in our salvation? And indeed, brothers and sisters, works do play a part in our salvation. Now, works are not the basis of our justification before God, but they are the evidences that we have been justified before God. So far in the book of James, we have seen what it means to live as a Christian. And this evening is no different. Last week, we learned that not all faith is real faith. But there is such thing as false faith. This evening, we will see what it means to have true saving faith. So if you're taking notes, the heading could be true saving faith. Last week was false faith. This week is true saving faith. To recap, last week we saw that, that false faith has many aspects, such as empty profession. That is, one who professes Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. Another aspect we saw was empty compassion. Telling someone to keep warm and God bless you, knowing that you have a closet full of coats, is an example of empty compassion. That's false compassion. And last we saw that, that false faith is similar to demonic faith and academic faith. Meaning you can know all the right doctrine and theology, and you can profess Jesus as God, yet your profession is nothing more than what the demons profess. 
because the demons get it right also. Faith with no action is dead faith, as we learned last week. And that's what James is trying to get across this whole chapter. Saying you believe in Jesus Christ ultimately means nothing if you don't live and show like you believe in Jesus Christ. And to prove that point, here in our verses this evening, James will point us back to the Old Testament, to two people whom have different backgrounds, yet similar faith. If you're taking notes, I have two points I would like for you to consider this evening. One, the faith of a righteous man. The faith of a righteous man. And number two, the faith of a prostitute woman. The faith of a prostitute woman. And if you have those written down, will you please stand with me for the reading of the word? James chapter 2. And if I could, I'm just going to read the whole thing. Our verses will be from 20 to 26, but I want to read the whole thing so you guys are refreshed in your memory. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way also, Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. You may be seated. <clears throat> Our verses are going to be from, from verse 20 to 26. Let's first look at the faith of a righteous man. The faith of a righteous man. This righteous man, of course, is Abraham. Now, who is Abraham? If you grew up in church, you know Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. How many sons had Father Abraham? I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, left, right leg, left leg, all that. But in the Old Testament, the only man who was more revered and held in such high esteem, other than Moses, is Abraham. We first introduced Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, and that was his name at the time, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families on the earth shall be blessed. So the Lord is calling this man, Abram, to leave his country. And if he does... He will be blessed. God will make a great nation through Abraham. And as we move along in the story of Abraham, we see in Genesis 15, God making a covenant with Abram. He promised Abram an heir, his very own son. Then in chapter 15, verse 5, God tells Abram to look up and count the stars. That's how many will come from your line Abraham, as we read on in chapter 16, Abram, as well as as well as his wife, Sarah, become very impatient. You see, it's been a long time since God had promised or told Abram that he will have a son. 
So they become very impatient with God's plan. So they take matters into their own hands. And as you know, Abram sleeps with Sarah's servant, Hagar. As a result, Ishmael is born. Then chapter 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham and reaffirms the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 15 that Sarah will bear a son. And in chapter 21, Isaac is born. Now let's remember the people whom James is writing to were primarily a Jewish audience. They were Jews. They come from a background of Judaism, which is basically legalism. And they knew their Old Testament. That is why James, who at this moment, playing the role of a lawyer, a good one, I might add, will present his strongest case that faith apart from works is dead. Look again at verse 20 to 24. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by his works and not by faith alone. So far in chapter 2, James has been building his case that faith with no action is dead faith. So he says in verse 20 to his to these people whom he's arguing with, look what he calls them. You foolish person. You foolish person. Do you want me to prove to you that faith without works is useless? Okay, let's talk about Abraham. And I find that very interesting, but it's also that's very bold. James is using a man whom Jewish people held in such high regard. And James knows that. That is why he says in the beginning of verse 21, was not Abraham our father? The Jews banked on being descendants of Abraham. And all throughout the Gospels, the Jews were constantly reminding Jesus that Abraham is their father, as, they ha- as if they had some type of special privilege or something. And James knew that, so he proposes a question to them. Was not Abraham, your our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? James takes these Jewish brothers and sisters back to Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. Genesis 20, let me, I'm just going to read you half of the story. And, and if you want to follow along, that's great. Uh, but if you want, you can just listen. Sometime later, and, and listen to the story, because it's going to make sense in the context of what James is talking about, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Doesn't even talk about Ishmael. Your only son. Yes, Isaac. And to rub it in a little bit more, whom you love so much. And go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled up his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire, for a burnt offering, and, and sent out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, on, the, on their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with a donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. <clears throat> so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked, up, walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father... Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We, we have the fire and the wood, the boy said. But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac. 
and laid on him the altar on the top of the wood. Then at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, replied Abraham. Here I am. Don't lay a hand on that boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your own son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by the thorns in the thicket. So he caught the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. What an amazing story that is. What do we see in the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac? Well, we see the same thing James sees in verse 22. If you look, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. Now, let me bring this down to our level. Imagine, brothers and sisters, God telling you to offer up your son and daughter as a sacrifice. Matter of fact, imagine your firstborn being offered up as a sacrifice. What type of thoughts would you feel? What type of emotions would stir up inside of you? Now, I'm not a father yet, Lord willing, but if God told me to offer up Moses' faith or Nazareth, my nephews and niece, as a sacrifice, well, quite honestly, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I can go along with that. If I could be more honest with you, I think my perception of God and his justice and holiness and goodness might be a bit shattered. And that's probably what Abraham was thinking at that time. Abraham was probably an emotional wreck. Everything Abraham knew about the covenant-keeping God and his promises were probably put into question. You see, before this, before this time, there was no such thing as human sacrifices. But now God is saying, go and sacrifice a human. Not just any human, your son, the one whom you love so much. I mean, God, this is the boy whom you promised. This is the boy whom we waited for. But now you're asking me to offer him up as a sacrifice. I'm so confused. We would be so confused. But this was Abraham's test from God. And anytime God tests an individual, it always hurts. And it's always confusing. But in the midst of confusion, of pressure and heartache, for what was about to transpire, verse 3 says, of Genesis, back in Genesis, the next morning, Abraham got up early. In the midst of, I don't know if you caught that, in the midst of confusion, and in in probably the most terrifying thing he's ever imagined he had to do, he still woke up early. It says he saddled up his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. And he chopped the wood for fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place that God told him about. That's amazing. In the midst of confusion, God still, Abraham still had faith in God. Brothers and sisters, let that be a lesson for us as well. In testings and times of stress, we should always remain faithful to God. Always remain faithful to God. We learned last Sunday that in our trials and testings, the sovereignty of God is our confidence. Like Spurgeon said, it's that pill that we rest our head upon at night. In our testings, we always see things dimly, do we not? Things are always hazy and and very unclear. But to God, all things are clear. And just as God brought clarity to Jesus' disciples in the final hours of Christ's life, God will bring clarity to our confusion as well. And remember what Pastor said two weeks ago, in our testings and sufferings, we always look at what's happening externally. How things are going to situate themselves and how things are all going to come together at the end. Instead of rather looking at what God is doing through those sufferings in us internally. Abraham is our model of such examination. 
because Abraham woke up early in the morning, because he trusted in God's promises. And then he acted upon God's requirements with obedience. Abraham had faith and his actions proved it. His works came alongside his faith and he showed himself to be a true follower of God. Abraham had true saving faith. As James says back in verse 21, Abraham offering up his son Isaac as a sacrifice was his justification. But not before God. Because back in Genesis 15, Abraham was already justified. As Paul says in Romans 4. But Abraham offering up his son Isaac was Abraham's justification before men. Not before God, but before men. As Abraham was about to kill his very own son, the whole world watched a man's faith be put into action. Some might say, well, well, who was there? How was Abraham's faith justified before men if no one was there? Simple answer. Was not Isaac there? Do our eyes count? We know about that story. Abraham was not saved by his obedience in sacrificing Isaac. Rather, that obedience proved the reality of his previous saving faith. It showed itself. The same faith that, he, that, was, that justified him in Genesis 15 showed itself in Genesis 22 at the sacrifice of Isaac. Brothers and sisters, let that be a lesson to us as well. When we are going through a test in time of, of hardships and struggles, Those are the times when we can show to ourselves as well as the rest of the world that we are truly saved. That we truly believe God. That our confession that we made before God will be seen before men. And sadly, those who quit, those who go back to a lifestyle of sin, those who stop fellowshipping and stop coming to church show that their prior confession of faith in Jesus Christ was never real, and was never genuine to begin with. Because when times got hard, their actions showed if they truly had faith in God. It doesn't matter if someone has been a so-called Christian for more than 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Let me give you one fact. The one who used to pastor in this building before my, my father took over this church was a pastor whom many looked up to and many respected. Now he doesn't even want to be called pastor. His faith wasn't real because real faith shows itself in the midst of hard times, in the midst of difficult times. Genuine faith works. The proof that Abraham believed God is seen by his actions. His obedience, he obediently offered up Isaac. Friends, genuine faith and works are inseparable because genuine faith always results in good works. Always. You can't just talk about it. You have to be about it as well. So question, brothers and sisters. Question, friends. Is your faith that bold and that radical? In testings, do you trust God? And we all can shake our head right now, but the reality is many of us don't. It's hard for us to trust God in the midst of trials and testings and sufferings. But beloved, do you want to know what made Abraham's faith in God so powerful and so radical? Hebrews 11.20 tells us that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Do you have faith in God's promises like that? And do you live like you believe in God's promises? Psalms 9, 9-10 says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Let me give you another one. Psalms 55, 22. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Friends, these are promises to God's people. These are promises to God's people. Can I get an amen? We are Baptists. We can say amen. Those are God's promises to his very own. And friends, God is undefeated in his promises. 
These are promises we believe in. These are promises we live in light of. And friends, if you do that, then you have true saving faith. Abraham had saving faith. His faith was active, alive, and his works was the completion of his faith. And look at the result of Abraham's faith in God. Verse 23 of chapter 2 in James. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted him as righteousness. And, and get this, and he was called a friend of God. The result of his faith and his works was him being called a friend of God. Because Abraham's obedience and faith, he was called God's friend. But brothers and sisters, this is the same title that is given to us. It's not just limited to Abraham. This is our title as well, when you obey God. You don't believe me. John 15 says, you are my friends if you do what I command. This is our Lord speaking. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. How instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You had not chosen me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. So that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. Friends, God didn't save you just for you to have faith in him. Let me make that plain and clear. He did not save you just for you to have faith in him. But he saved you to bear good fruit. Jesus says, I chose you. Before the foundation of the world, I set my love upon you. I knew you. I had an intimate relationship with you. I was very fond of you for the purpose of glorifying my name and bearing fruit. Paul makes that point very clear in Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand. That's radical. So these works were already prepared beforehand. And all we have to do is walk through them. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Friends, good works is what we were created for. Those good works help others visibly see the invisible God whom we serve. So you are not saved by your works. You're saved to your works. And friends, ultimately, is Jesus works through you. You know, friends, a large majority of atheists and agnostics who have come to Christ have come not because of great arguments, for the existence of God or for the resurrection. But they have come because they have seen great love shown by Christians. They have seen good works and righteous deeds done by Christians. And they said to themselves, I want what they have. I need what they have. And of course, what we have is Jesus. Not just the faith that Jesus is a Savior and Lord, but we show that he is a Savior and a Lord by our works, by our fruit bearing. So let's go to verse 24. And James makes one of the most misunderstood and most controversial statements in all of the New Testament. And those who've been following James, for my theology geeks and nerds out there, this is the moment you've been waiting for. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What do we do with that? Many Catholics use this first as a proof text to explain their doctrine of salvation. As I told you, they ultimately believe that one is justified by works and not by faith alone. We agree that someone is justified solely on the basis of Jesus Christ and his perfect work alone. Our works add nothing to our salvation. Our works only show that our salvation is real and active and alive. So let me just answer one simple question. Just one. And write it down if you need to. Does James contradict Paul? Does James contradict Paul? I'm going to put two verses up. 
and your mental screen, okay? Paul says in Romans 3.28, listen closely, for we, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's Paul. James, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What do we do when a Roman Catholic tells us that? What do we do when an atheist tells us that? Contradiction? Let's figure out. Let's figure it out. Let me give you an analogy that, that I hope will help. You're at a doctor's office, okay? The doctor has two rooms where he meets with patients. And you hear the doctor walk into one room and he says, Sir, you need to start jogging. You need to get up and start running. You need to be active. The doctor walks into the other room. He says to the other patient, Sir, you need to sit down. You need to stop running. You shouldn't be active. Contradiction? No, different patients. One patient is really heavy, and the other patient broke his leg. One guy needs to run. The other needs to sit down. It's not a contradiction. We, you consider the patients. Then the diagnosis makes complete sense. James is writing to ex-highly religious people who come from a background of legalism. They think that faith is enough, that they don't need to do anything. Paul is writing to newly converted Jews and Gentiles who think that they have to do works of the law in order to be justified before God. Paul is saying faith alone in Christ alone is the basis of your salvation. So what we have is a switch in audiences. Different patients, different problems, different treatments. If you're writing to highly religious people who don't do anything, who come from a background of doing everything, you're going to tell them to do something. Because all they're thinking is, okay, I have faith in Jesus, that's it. I don't have to do anything. No fruit bearing, no nothing. You're going to tell them, hey, man, you got to do something. you got to bear fruit. you got to show your faith. If you're writing to people who are doing a lot, you're going to tell them, stop trying. Stop. Jesus has done it all. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in his perfect works. Jesus has done everything. And, and write this down. Paul is focused on how we become Christians. James is focused on how we live as Christians. Two different problems that each man is addressing. Paul was writing to those who taught that we must add works to faith in order, or add works to faith in Christ in order to be justified. James is writing to those who claim they have saving faith, but their lives do not show it. Their profession of faith was mere words with no evidence of a changed life. So Paul and James also. Another point, Paul and James were using the word justified in different senses. Completely different senses. Paul was looking at God's initial declaration that the believer is, is righteous before, through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. The initial declaration. Paul was looking at the beginning of a person's right standing before God. James is not looking at the beginning of one's faith. Rather, he's looking at one's faith as it matures Throughout time, James says that Abraham's obedience and offering up Isaac perfected his faith and fulfilled the scripture. That refers to his initial faith. Make sense? And lastly, there is one other factor in considering uh, reconciling James and Paul. When James says in verse 24 that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, the addition of the world alone shows that he is referring to the false faith that he's been talking about this whole section. He's not talking about faith alone in Christ alone. He's talking about that faith that just stays alone. That has no works backed up toward to it. That bare faith, that naked faith. 
That faith that does not result in a life of good deeds. Even Paul spoke himself about the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. And he often emphasized the role of good deeds as, as a result of God's grace in the lives of his people, Titus 2.14. So both Paul and James would agree that genuine faith that justifies always results in a life of good deeds. False faith is an empty profession that does not justify. Douglas Moo sums it up this way. If a sinner can get into a relationship with God only by faith, Paul, that's what Paul is saying, the ultimate validation of that relationship takes into account the works of that true faith because because it inevitably produces good fruit. That's what James is saying. So the sum of this point is we are justified by faith alone, but that faith never stays alone. And we have Abraham as our example of one who has faith in God and faith in God's promises, even in the midst of testing and confusion. Now let's look at the last point, and that is faith in a prostitute woman. The faith of a prostitute woman. After James has been giving, has, James has been giving us his first example of, of faith apart from works is dead. He then turns to another person in the Bible whom the Jews would know about. Rahab, the prostitute. You see that Abraham was very respected, very respected. Rahab was looked down upon. Abraham was wealthy. Rahab lived in poverty. Abraham was the father of the Hebrews. Rahab was a pagan foreigner. Yet both share one thing in common, and that is their faith proved itself in their actions. Rahab's story is told in Joshua 2 and a little bit in Joshua 6. And let me just sum it up for you. Israel was about to invade their promised land and take the city of Jericho. But before that, Joshua sent spies, two spies, into the city to lay hold of the land, see what was going on. There, the two spies met Rahab, and they stayed with her. When the king of Jericho got word of this, he told Rahab in Joshua 2, verses 3 through 6, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house. So they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hid them. And she said, true, the, man came to, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was closed, and, was, and when the gate was about to be closed at the dark, the men went out. Brothers and sisters, it's, if it's for a good cause, it's okay to lie. Because Rahab did. I do not know the men, where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stacks of flax, stacks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the roads, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Rahab protected these spies by hiding them. And then sending them out by a way in which they could escape. In verse 8 through 13 says, Before the men lay down, she came up to the roof. And she said to the men, Hear this, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you have come out of Egypt. For what, do, for, what did, for what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan and Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The story concludes that Rahab, the story concludes that Rahab helping these spies escape through her very own window by way of a cord. 
God flattered, flattened the walls of Jericho, destroying the entire city, but left Rahab and her family alone. And they were spared by God's wrath, and she was welcomed into Israel's fold. If you've never read that story, know about that story, it's a powerful story to read about. Joshua 2. Why would James use Rahab as an example? Because Rahab executed saving faith. Saving, true saving faith. Rahab heard the word and and knew her city was condemned. This truth affected her fellow citizens so that their hearts melted within them, as Joshua 2.11 says. Rahab responded with her mind and her emotions, as we all do, but also responded with her will. She did something with her faith. She risked her own life to protect the Jewish spies. Rahab didn't just say, I believe in your God. Now find your way out. Rather, she risked her own life. Her faith in God led her to action. Her faith was not just empty words. Her faith worked. Now, let me just tell you a quick story. When I was younger, my auntie used to have a pool. And we used to come with the family. We used to swim in this pool. And uh, I can remember one time when Pastor was there and my cousins were there. And I was so scared to jump in the deep end. I was so terrified. And I can remember Pastor urging me, Zay, jump. Nothing's going to happen to you. You will not drown. You will not die. Jump. I will catch you. And me, being the negotiator that I am, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure you're going to catch me? Yes, I will catch you. Trust me. Are you positive? Are you strong enough? Yes, I'm strong enough. Believe me. Have faith in me. If I never jump, would I have faith in my brother? No. My faith is a mere confession, but my actions are far distant from what I proclaim. You see, Rahab and Abraham jumped when it was time to jump. When it was time for them to put their faith into action, Rahab and Abraham didn't talk about it. They were about it. Matthew Henry draws several lessons from James and, and, and mention of, lessons from James mention of Rahab. And the first lesson is Rahab's life points to the wonderful power of faith in transforming and changing sinners. As soon as Rahab believed God, you can see it. Her life started to change. She wasn't perfect, but she was different. Friends, Christians aren't perfect, but they're different. You can't meet Jesus. You can't meet the sovereign Lord of the universe and not change your life. It just doesn't happen. You can't say, I have faith in Jesus and sit on the sidelines. And Rahab is our example of a sinner whose life was changed by God's grace and Holy Spirit. She did something with her faith. She left her life of of evil and wickedness and later was included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What an amazing story of God's grace. Second lesson we see in Rahab is she shows how highly God regards an operated faith to maintain his mercy and favor. Rahab was a prostitute. No little girl in the world dreams of being a prostitute. She lived a life that was one of sin and rebellion against God. Yet, no matter how great our sins are, The Bible promises whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Final lesson we see in Rahab's life is she shows where great sins are pardoned, there must be great acts of self-denial. Where great sins are pardoned, there must be great acts of self-denial. She abandoned her former friends and turned completely from her former life in order for her and the rest of her family to be saved. Rahab chose to honor God 
and for the good of his people and head of the preservation of her own country. She abandoned everything. To follow Christ, we must count the cost. We must turn from our sins. And I know we hear count the cost so many times, but don't let that become just a catchphrase or just something that we say to remind us, okay, I need to start being serious. This is something that we live by. We do daily. Rahab counted the cross cost. Friends, in order to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you a lot. Maybe a job, maybe marriage, girlfriend, boyfriend, best friends, family. But Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If I didn't hate, tat- if I didn't hate tattoos and, and, and hate um, needles, man, I would tattoo that on me. Because it's so true. The things you lose in this world are rubbish. Knowing Christ and be found in him is all gain. Christ is the treasure in the field that we sell everything for just to buy that field. So last question I have for you, brothers and sisters. Have you found him? Have you found Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about if you, if you signed a card, if you prayed a prayer, if you walked down an aisle, if you know Reformed theology, if you know Calvinism, if you know everything about Christology, the doctrine of Christ. I'm asking, have you found Jesus Christ? Is he the treasure in your life? Is he the apple in your eye? Is your life totally changed by him? Is, your supreme, is he your supreme joy and happiness? Is, is all your contentment and, and everlasting satisfaction found in Christ? Does he control every single chamber of your body and in your mind? Family, I urge you. I plead with you. I beseech you. Fall in love with Jesus Christ. Fall in love with Jesus Christ. Read books. Listen to sermons. All in order to behold your God in a more grand way so when people look at you, they see Christ. So what's the point of James using these two mighty figures of faith? Is that they both believe God in here and you can see it out there. Friends, following Jesus is not what you know internally. It's what that knowledge does to you externally. And two, these, these great mighty figures of faith are now in, as Hebrew says, the hall of fame of faith. That's the message of James 2, friends and family. True saving faith shows itself in love and compassion for the needy. True saving faith wants to share the gospel with a stranger, with a friend, with a family member. True saving faith doesn't just sit on the sidelines, but they do something. True saving faith doesn't quit. They don't go back to a lifestyle of sin. They don't stop coming to church. They hold on to God's promises. True saving faith shows no favoritism or partiality. Real true saving faith works. Let's pray.